Almighty God, you are holy and glorious. You deserve, you deserve all majesty and honor and praise and worship. You have revealed yourself through your creation. You revealed yourself through your word. And you have revealed yourself most perfectly through the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We confess our confidence in Jesus Christ is often wavering. We often lose heart and become discouraged in our guilt, in our dread, and in our despair. We become weary in our struggle against sin. And we're prone to neglect our great salvation. Our faith's greatest malady, however, is not our earnestness, but it is the object of our faith. We come this morning, Lord, confessing our constant wandering away from Jesus Christ as our final end in joy and hope. Our faith, instead, will find many other new objects of trust, seeking to be satisfied in the many empty hopes and passing joys of this world, instead of reveling in Christ, the radiance of the glory of God, or resting in the finished and final work of Christ on the cross by the blood of the eternal covenant, that we may be equipped with everything good, that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. We'll keep your Bibles open there. Chapter 1 of Hebrews. We're going to be looking through uh, several passages in Hebrews. So uh, as we typically do in a, in a normal Lord's Day, as you know, we'll take a text and we'll camp out there for the day. Today, because we're going to be looking at an overview of the book of Hebrews, you're going to be uh, paging back and forth in the book of Hebrews. And so I wanted to warn you and let you know um, it may be of advantage to you to simply write these passages down and just taking notes. Just note those. Some of you will want to get there. Um, I have, I'm going to be turning as well, so I'll give you a little bit of time to do that, but, uh, but I will not be waiting because we, we need to get through a lot of information today as we look at the book of Hebrews and introduce it to you today. Let me begin by asking you a question. Why do you trust in Christ? What, what makes you want to follow Christ? Well, we have a lot of different answers maybe for that. And maybe we haven't been honest enough to ask ourselves that question. Um, and maybe we just aren't faithful enough to ask ourselves that question, I believe, enough. Because at the, at the end of the day, I think our hearts, as Scripture says, is desperately wicked. And we will take even Christ and make him not an end, but a means. We'll make him a path to something that we want, as opposed to the one whom we are to treasure. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which Phil has read for us, says, Long ago and in many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Listen to this, verse 3. Christ is, he is, the radiance of the glory of God, the, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This morning, we're going to be starting the book of Hebrews. And my great joy, my great anticipation for us this morning is that not only will we be introduced to the book of Hebrews and begin getting some kind of flavor and idea of what God, my prayers, what God will be doing in us as a congregation for the next year. There's about 39 to 40 sermons as I've mapped it out here in the book of Hebrews. And so it'll be a little less than a year that we'll be working through the book of Hebrews. And I know that God has, a, a, God has this truth for us, this congregation, this morning. 
that's in the book of Hebrews for us to revel in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For us to turn to Christ and see Him not as a means to an end, but as the end, the one. Are we, are we excited about Jesus because He's the, he's the one who's going to help us emotionally? So in the end, what we're after is a, is a therapist, and Jesus can help us with that. At the end of the day, are we after one who is sovereign over all things, so therefore he can take care of my accounting and my business and my affairs and the things in my life. And so I need a life that's a little more ordered, an an administrator, if you will. And so Jesus is the great administrator, and I'm going to trust in Jesus because he's going to get my life in order. Or he's the one who puts people together. I may be looking for a spouse, or I may be looking for my spouse to be more faithful. And so God is the great counselor, the great a matchmaker who's going to do all these things and take care of us. Are we after Jesus for what he can give us in this world? Are we after Jesus for Jesus? You see, in our passage here it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he can do all those things that I just mentioned. After making, this is what Jesus came to do. Make purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, there is a sense where Jesus is a means to an end. But if Jesus is the if Jesus is a means to any other end than God, then we are believing in a wrong Jesus. We are, if you will, let me make this bold statement, if you are trusting in Jesus for any other reason than the fact that he can, he gives us purification of sins, that we may go and be with him and enter into the presence of God Almighty. He's the exact radiance and glory and imprint of God himself. If we are believing and trusting in Jesus for any other reason than to have God, if that's the only reason you're trusting for the other, other, all these other reasons, if you're trusting him in any of those other reasons, you are a false professor of faith. Now, I believe many of us have trusted in Jesus for Jesus. We want God. We want to be with our maker and creator. We want Christ to bring us to the throne of grace. And yet every day we're fighting this battle of, but Jesus can give me this too. And Jesus can give me that too. And Jesus can give me... Here's the point of Hebrews. Jesus, friends... Is sufficient. He is sufficient. He can meet every longing, every desire. He's enough for us. We can look to Him. And when we look to Christ, friends, and we haven't, I don't, I think we forget this. I think this is what I desire, this is what I believe God desires for us in this book of Hebrews, that when we As we get into the book of Hebrews, when we think Jesus Christ, we no longer think of, oh, yeah, that's the one that's going to help me with my marriage. Or, yeah, that's the one that's going to help me kind of hold things together because my life is kind of a wreck. Or, yeah, that's the one that's going to do this or do that. Instead, you're going to to think of Jesus and you're going to say, He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe. He is my God and my maker. Jesus is enough to sustain us, and to keep us, and to care for us. But at the end of the day, he's not a therapist. He's not a counselor. He's not an administrator. He's a savior. A savior from God who is holy. So, as you can maybe can tell, I'm excited about the book of Hebrews. I'm ready for us. In, in, the, in the Old Testament, if you notice, as we work through the book of Genesis... Week after week, I, we looked at the book of Genesis and we looked at the truths were there. And I, and I looked and I said, look now, here's, here's what's happening here in the book of Genesis. Here's what's happening in this chapter. And then I made a beeline to Jesus. You know how I did that every week. I said, now, this is how Christ is the point of this passage in the book of Genesis. I don't have to make a beeline anymore. It's going to be right here. We're going to be able to just, just revel in the pureness of God's word. And Jesus is going to be on every page, every phrase, every sentence. I'm, I'm excited about allowing us to just revel in him this week and these weeks ahead and these months ahead. Notice with me, if you will, I want us to look at the book of Hebrews and I want us to consider 
some questions that's addressed in the book of Hebrews as basically a foundation for us to understand what's going on here. And so this may seem more like a Bible study than a, than a sermon. I'm, I'm going to try my best to uh, challenge us and, and encourage us toward Christ in the midst of this so that it's not just data transfer. But I do need to, we do need to lay some kind of groundwork of understanding where we're at and what we're looking at when we look at the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to be asking the, fa- the, the five famous W questions of the book of Hebrews. What, when, where, who, and why? All right? That's not going to be too complicated. And we're going to answer those questions. So you're thinking, man, he's got five points. There's no way we're going to get finished in time. Uh, Many of them are short, okay? So we're going to ask what, when, where, who, and why. Those are the five points, and we're going to look at those in that order. What, when, where, who, and why. And we don't have passages connected to those, but we will be looking at different passages as we move through here. All right? First question is what? And the question that this addresses is basically what is the book of Hebrews? What what is this that we have? And to my great joy as I began studying the book of Hebrews, guess what I realized this book was? Now, we notice that as we look at it, it doesn't start out like many of Paul's letters to the churches, does it? It doesn't start out with a greeting, grace and peace to you and grace to Jesus, Lord, and to the saints who are... No, it it doesn't say that. In fact, it starts right out... And what we find is that this book is, in fact, a sermon. A sermon. It's a sermon. It was uniquely written as a sermon for a particular body of believers. Now, when I, mean, when I say that, I don't mean a particular individual unit body of believers, but it was written for a particular region, and we'll get to that in a minute of where it was written, but it was written for a body of believers. And so it's unique in that way. We're going to find that this was actually a sermon written, and according to the passage, look at the end of chapter, uh, the end of the book of Hebrews, chapter thirteen, chapter thirteen, verse twenty-two. This phrase here in chapter thirteen, verse twenty-two, it says the author of Hebrews says, chapter thirteen, verse twenty-two, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. Now, this this exhortation, that word for exhortation is used in the book of Acts often. It's used in Acts 13, verses 14 and 15, Romans 15, verse 4. In each case, that word is used in both in Romans and in Acts. It's speaking of um, God's people, and specifically either Peter or Paul, taking the Old Testament and showing God's people Christ from the Old Testament. And we find that's exactly what's happening in the book of Hebrews here. This was, in fact, a sermon that was preached. And notice this. I love this. I didn't want us to miss this part. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 22, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. This is a short sermon. A short sermon is what this one is. This is far longer than anything I've ever preached. This is a short sermon, according to them. So I'm not doing you guys service by the short sermons that I'm giving you each week. This was a written sermon. Most say it was one unit and it was a sermon written, and the reason it was preached and then it was written down so that it can be circulated among the churches because it was such of such important nature. So this sermon here was written for God's people to be encouraged, specifically exhorted in the Old Testament, showing how Christ is seen in the Old Testament. Now, if you would, take a moment, and we're going to look at the structure as well. And we're still under the heading of what is this, the, the structure of Hebrews. This is a sermon, but I also want you to see the outline as well. Notice on page 3 of your worship journal, I wanted you to see this. Each of these subpoints are pretty much going to be a sermon for us as we work through the book of Hebrews. It's on page 3 as well as on page 4, the outline of this entire book. All right? And I want you to see that if you want to understand the book of Hebrews and the outline in a broad way of the book of Hebrews, we're going to be talking about over the next year our superior the superior person of Christ, the superior work of Christ, and then on page four at the top, the superior life of Christ. Do you see how those are the three big headings for the book of Hebrews? Chapters one through four, verse 13, we're going to be looking at the superior person of Jesus Christ, who he is, who he is. And then in point number two, this is on page three of your worship journal, Chapters 4 through 10 is going to be looking at the superior work of Christ and specifically his work as, a, as one who is a sacrifice for the penalty of sin. And then point number 3 on page 4, 
superior life in Christ, a superior Savior. Okay, a superior Savior, a superior work, a superior life in Christ. I want us to notice these. Now, let me make note of this as well as we look through this passage, and I want us to, to see this. This may be something I want us to, to, to kind of grab hold of as we look at the book of Hebrews. These people, as Phil noted before we read the, book, we read the passage this morning, were going through tribulations and trials. And so what we don't see here in this passage is a lot of um, you can do it, come on, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know what we see in the brunt of the book of Hebrews? First, we see the preacher or the pastor communicating to his people, this is who Jesus is. Get a vision for who Jesus is. And then, then I want you to understand people, and this is a pastor speaking to his people here in this sermon. It's very personal. He says, now I want you to understand what Jesus has done for his people. What, what did he do when he came here on earth? And then only after the author of Hebrews finished just going on and on about who Jesus is and what he did, does he get to, the, does he get to um, let's see here, chapter 10, verse 19, when he says, now this is how your life is supposed to look. Let me make a few observations about this. First is that we're too apt too often to go straight to chapter 10 and start reading all the commands and the imperatives in the Scripture and say, God just wants me to do these things. Never seeing that the roots for our obedience is always in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. In other words, let me say it another way, and maybe some of your English-minded people and some of the homeschool moms can understand this way of saying it. The indicatives always precede the imperatives. Let me say it another way for those who aren't English-minded, which is probably most of us. Who we are or who God is must always precede what we do. In other words, here's another way of saying it. Our doctrine must always precede our doxology. What we believe about God has to be our foundation. And that's what roots us in how we live for God. If we decide to say, you know what, we need deeds, not creeds, which is a famous saying these days, we're going to push away the creeds, we're going to just start doing and living for God, what we'll find is that our, our faith is baseless. It's not rooted in the right things. It's not rooted in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an illustration that may help us understand the absolute essential nature of us spending many, 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 many weeks before we get to chapter 10 talking about the person and work of Christ and us laying that groundwork first and foremost. And it is for this reason. Because I believe the greatest malady, and I mentioned it in our prayer time, the greatest malady, the greatest hurt for our faith isn't our earnestness. It isn't our genuineness. It isn't that we just, we're not, we're not uh, wanting enough to be faithful. Our greatest malady is that our object gets lost. The object of our faith becomes something other than Jesus. And so what we do is we lose track of the object of our faith is Jesus. The, the aim of our faith is Jesus. The, the going after in our faith is Jesus. When, when we begin resting on how I feel, what I think, my emotions, um, all these other things, and that's the thing that helps me become faithful, then your faith is all up and down and everywhere. But if your faith is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then it's something that's outside of you and that is sure... And so the, the greatest malady for our faith isn't that it's not strong enough. It's that so often it's resting on the wrong things. Let me illustrate it this way. You've fallen off a cliff. You're falling down. You're kind of being drugged down the side of this mountain, and you're trying to get hold of something that will keep you from falling all the way down and off the cliff completely. And, and, and you're falling. You, you, you're you're, you're kind of being drugged down this mountain, and you, and you grab a twig that's sticking out of the sticking out of the, uh, the mountain there, and you want it to hold you up. Now, you may be, unlike me, physically fit enough 
to hold onto a twig like that and actually hold yourself up. Okay? You may have that ability, right? You may be strong enough to do that. You may, be, you may know that that twig is there and it's coming and I'm going to watch for it. And as I pass by it, I'm going to grab it and hold on to that twig. And it's going to save me. Right? There may be every reason in the world why you would place your faith in that twig that's sticking out of that mountain for it, for it to hold you. But at the end of the day, the fallacy is that that twig is a rotten root. So no matter how much strength and effort and genuineness that you have in believing in that twig to save your life, it's not going to save you. Because your object of your faith is misplaced. It can't save you. That twig cannot save you. Now, if there's a rope that is firmly tied to a tree on top of the cliff, and it is hanging over the side of the cliff and down the mountain, and it's a firm rope that is, that is tied well and supported well, and you grab hold of it and have faith in it, it can save you, right? But the issue isn't your strength, your ability, your power, your earnestness in your faith. The problem is the object of your faith. Friends, nothing can save us but Christ. And so our only sufficient end needs to be Christ. The author of Hebrews knew that. He knew that we are so apt, so our tendency is so quick to try to use Jesus to get to something else other than God. Yes, I can have Jesus and he'll do this for me. And he'll do that for me. And he'll do this for me. And so therefore, I'm going to believe in Jesus for those other things that I really want. Never realizing that who you really need to be concerned about, who's really is the concern that we have, isn't our economic strife. It isn't our marriage strife. It isn't our emotional or relational strife. Our problem is our sin before God. And so Jesus is our Savior. Those other things... Can, can God, as being the creator of all the earth and holding it together, the universe and all those things, can he help us in those regards? Well, well yes, but that's not why we believe in him. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this? Well, let's move on to when, and I think it will answer that question for us. When, point number two, when, the date and the occasion of Hebrews. We date the book of Hebrews. This is not going to take long. We date the book of Hebrews somewhere around 65 A.D. The reason we date it that late is that many, what we have here in the book of Hebrews is a body of believers that's not around or in, an, in anywhere near what we believe as Jerusalem. So this body of believers has, has, is away, far away from where Paul was doing a lot of his missionary journeys. These people have trusted in Christ. They have a pastor. They have established leaders, as we see later on in the book. And they're falling away from their faith, which they've had for some time, at least some point of time. And so there has to be a point where you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus lived for about 30 years, and so he's done, and the ministry's there. And so now we've got about 30 more years that this church has been established, probably by Paul. And this church is being established and beginning now to fall away. So it took a little bit of time for us to do that. Can you turn the air on for us, Phil? So it has to be after 60 but it has to also be before 70 A.D. Now, why do I say that? Because in the book, it mentions all over the place where the fear is, is that these Jews are going to go back to sacrificing at the temple. In 70 A.D., a very significant thing happened historically, and that is that the temple was destroyed. And so they wouldn't have a temple to go back to if, they were, if, if the author was writing this letter after 70 A.D., and so what we do is we typically will, will uh, date this book somewhere 65 A.D., and it's kind of give or take in there somewhere. And so we understand it to be this. Now, we know that when the temple was destroyed, that wasn't good news for the Christians overall, was it? In other words, incredible, immense persecution was on the way. We can see that looking back on history. They couldn't see that, but they began seeing that some in their lives. There was beginning to be these this persecution is pushing back of the Christian faith among the people here around 65 A.D. We find this persecution had not led yet to martyrdom. It doesn't seem, but that that was definitely the anticipation and the assumption by many. We know that in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, if you'd like to turn there, verse 32, Hebrews 10, verse 32 
Hebrews 10.32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's always so odd to me. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Let us sink in. Since, how did they do that? How did they joyfully accept the plundering of their property? Verse 34, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see the earnestness of these days that these people were living in? see the earnestness of this pastor who was trying to speak into the lives of these Christians who were losing their property, losing their lives, going to prisons and visiting those who were Christians who had been thrown into prison, those who had suffered and struggled affliction and reproach, being exposed to that. Now, this wasn't just um, this, this grandiose idea of all these men who were doing this. This was, this was men that were dads and fathers and children and wives and families who were seeking to live faithfully in a world that was hostile to their faith. And they knew this was coming. To the point that in Hebrews chapter 12, you can turn over one more page, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, the encouragement to the Christians here is this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the, the persecution, friends, wasn't just that world outside of them. They realized that the, the struggle was that sin that was within them. The struggle was outside and inside. It was in their heart as they were struggling to be faithful and there was sin abiding in their heart and they were struggling in that. And then there was the persecutions and the taking of their possessions and the, and the running for their lives on the outside as the world was persecuting them. Why? Let me back up now. Let me make the point here, connect it hopefully for us this morning. Why was it so important for this pastor in the book of Hebrews to tell his people, make Jesus your end, don't make Jesus your means to an end? Because if they were hoping in Jesus to give them great families, great vocational opportunities, health, prosperity and things and stuff, and then when they became Christians and their possessions were being taken from them, their job opportunities were being squelched. Many say that because they were, uh, they were no longer aligning themselves with the other Jewish people there in the, in the community, that the, the, uh, the business owners would not allow them to do business with them. They wouldn't buy and trade with them. So they were on their own in the way of economics. There were dads having to feed their children and not knowing how to do it. But if you have Jesus as a means to get all those other things, you know what you're going to do? You're going to abandon Jesus. Because Jesus was never your end to begin with, right? You're going to go after those things because that's what you wanted Jesus to help you with. And if Jesus isn't going to help me with all those other things, then I'm not going to follow Jesus. I'm going to bail ship. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go away. I'm going to, I'm going to not do this anymore. Why? Because your, your God was your things on the earth. Jesus was the means that you wanted to use to get more of those things and better of those things. But if your marriage is broken up because your husband's been thrown in jail... And your possessions are being taken because you're the only wife that's at home with your kids and then you can't defend your home. And all of this is because you're claiming Christ. You know what a pastor does in that situation? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is sufficient. Live for Christ. Don't live for these things. Live for Christ. He is enough. Do you see what this, see what this pastor is doing? He's trying to help them see this world is passing away with all of its things. Christ is sufficient. Why are we believing in Jesus? Why are we trusting Christ? Well, I answered this in a roundabout way, but let me answer the third question, and that is where, where these people were. Well, more than likely, these people were in Rome, or in at least the region around Rome. Most believe that. Because of the different things in the passages, I'm not going to be able to go through and track that out for you. But more than, like, more than likely, it wasn't just one 
Big, huge congregation, First Baptist Rome. In fact, please don't ever think that. Um, But the idea was there were many, many different house churches all over Rome and in the regions on the outside of Rome. And this pastor was really the shepherd of all of those different congregations. And he preached this sermon, and it was so helpful and encouraging for the issues that were at hand for this body of believers during the time of Hebrews that he, he had it written down, and this was being literally given to house church to house church so that they could read it and be encouraged because their faith was being being hindered and, and, and being pushed back um, and being questioned by this persecution and struggle. We also know that in this book of Hebrews that they're not only in Rome, but they're also Jewish Christians. Now note this, get this, because this is incredibly important for the rest of our study in the book of Hebrews. And, and, and if you may want to underline this or put this at the heading of your Bible, this is how important it is for the book of Hebrews to understand this heading of, of the Hebrews. The people that is being spoken of here are Jewish Christian professors. And I don't mean school professors. I mean people who are saying that they trust in Christ. And it's obvious by reading the book of Hebrews that the pastor is not quite sure whether they're going to endure or not. So note this, that this pastor, this preacher that's preaching this sermon, he's preaching it to these people who are in immense struggle and difficulty and being persecuted in Rome, which we all know that Nero, during the time of 70 AD, all the different things were happening there in way of persecution. These are Jewish Christian professors, people who profess faith. Now, were there believers in the midst of this, these congregations, these house churches? Of course. But were there people that were there believing in Jesus for some other reason than him being a savior, the radiance and imprint of God himself? Well, of course. And what's happening? There's a falling away. There are people that are within that body of believers that are falling away, and this pastor is trying to stabilize them, trying to give them a footing, trying to help them see what's really urgent, what's really important. The question then is this, and we're going to address this over and over and over again. I'm going to simply speak to it this morning, and then we're going to flesh this out over the next year. And um, if, if, if providence was the primary doctrine of the end of the book of Genesis, the perseverance of the saints is the primary doctrine that we're going to be dealing with over and over and over again as we work through the book of Hebrews. Let me give you from our statement of faith, our confession of faith, those who are members of our congregation have to affirm this confession of faith. Our confession of faith speaks in Article 11 of the perseverance of the saints. Listen to this article. Listen to this. We believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end. Do you see? Did you hear that? We believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. What's, their, what's the grand mark of one who's going to persevere to the end? It's that Christ is their aim and their end and their joy and their hope. It goes on, it says, that a special providence watches over their welfare, those who are attached to Christ through faith, and that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So let me read it all together. We believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare. And they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That's a far cry from what most people mean when they say, once saved, always saved. Isn't it? It's a far cry from that. We're going we're gonna to hang a lot of substance on what it means to be a true professor of Christ. And we're hopefully going to move away from many of our wrong ideas that we've grown up with so often with, with the phrase, once saved, always saved, as if it's some glib um, jingle <laughs> and it has no hope and no substance whatsoever. So where were they? That was question three. Where were they? They were... Jewish Christians in Rome. They were professing Christians, not sure where they were. The pastor's dealing with that. 
And the theme of this particular, and this is in the where, the theme of this was that Christ is superior. Christ is superior. This is under where. Um, the question where. Where's the audience and the theme of, where's the uh, theme of Hebrews? And it's that Christ is superior and better and greater than anything. All right? So we've got questions one through three down. Question number four, who? And you've heard me refer to it often, refer to the author as, of Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews. So I'm going to settle this once and for all. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna nail this down, and you will know from this point forward who the author of Hebrews is, in fact. Well, it's been all over the board, literally, throughout church history, uh, everywhere. First, many obviously want to attribute it to Paul, because Paul wrote so much of the New Testament. However, that's pretty unlikely for a lot of reasons. One is that the sentence structure and the vocabulary is very different. A lot of liberals try to use that terminology as well and try to keep Paul from being the writer of 1 Timothy as well. The difficulty is this, is that the, the actual Greek words and, and syntax is the most complicated that we have in all the New Testament. Um, this is the hardest Greek that we have. Paul is better at writing clear. <laughs> They're writing very simplistic easy to read statements um it's like reading a philosopher that just you can't get the sentences together or reading like a c.s lewis who everything he writes though it's very profound it's very simple to understand have you do you understand the difference here paul is very much like a c.s lewis in the sense that he writes things that are profound but he does it in a very simple way the author of hebrews um doesn't do that he uh he's very complex in his syntax and so we would say from that, um, as, well, as well the fact that the author of Hebrews seems to indicate as he's writing this sermon, as he's going through this, that he was not one who saw Jesus. And Paul was very insistent that though he was late in time, he did see Jesus and he was an apostle called by Jesus himself. Um, and so we would not attribute this letter to Paul. Some would like to attribute the letter to Apollos. Now we find Apollos in most of the... Um, most of the People who want to attribute Paulos to the author of Hebrews would go to Acts chapter 18. You may want to write that down. Acts 18, verses 24 through 28, which is the very end of Acts 18. And it speaks of Apollos in this way. Listen to just a second. Now, a Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent, eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And so he could write very well. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who were those through grace had believed, and listen to verse 28 of this in Acts, 20, Acts 18. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Okay? Now the thing is, is that many would then say, well, obviously then Apollos is the one that wrote Hebrews. The difficulty is that everybody was doing that then. <laughs> everybody was showing how the Old Testament... The Old Testament scriptures were pointing to Christ in the sense of all Christians were doing that. They were, they were doing that very thing. We would say that Apollos probably didn't do it, and this is why. Apollos was not named as the author until actually Martin Luther was the guy who first said that Apollos was the author of Hebrews. So that authorship was not attributed to Hebrews by Apollos until the Reformation. That's 1,500 years Nobody prior to Martin Luther, which Martin Luther did a lot of things on his own and just kind of went out there and blazed the trail, but nobody attributed Paulus as the author prior to that. And so what we would say is that because it was such a late understanding, none of the early church fathers believed that Paulus was the author of Hebrews. So we would, we would probably set that aside as well. One of the earliest attestations of what, uh, who was the author was by Origen himself in 254, and he basically writes a long, like, 15-page document about who the author is, and he goes through all of these different scenarios. And then he says, who accurately, who actually wrote the epistle, only God knows. And, and I, I think I'm going to be with the uh, origin on that one. I think he's a pretty good scholar, and I think he, pretty did, he did a pretty good job. So at the end of the day, what I'm going to say is this. I believe the Holy Spirit wrote 
this letter and that it's been understood as a letter in Holy Scripture from the very beginning. It didn't come in late or later on. It was with the original canon that we had as an early body of believers, as early Christians. And so we're just going to trust that whoever wrote this letter was one that God, this is the letter God wanted us to have. Now, what do we, that's, that's what we don't know about the author, right? We don't know his name. But we do know a lot of other things, and I thought this was pretty interesting. First, we know that he was not an eyewitness of Christ's ministry, since the gospel was confirmed to the author and to his audience by eyewitnesses. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, if you want to turn back there, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, it seems to indicate that the, 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 the author of this book in the book of Hebrews is writing with the same understanding of Christ. He received it in the same way as his, as his church did. In, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or obedient, disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. Okay, so it was declared first by the Lord. That's Jesus. And it was attested to us. This is a first-person plural pronoun, right? He's saying to me and to all of us as to church members. And it was attested to us by those who heard. And so what we find here is that this was not a person, the author, was not one who actually walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, but he was one who had heard this message from those who had gotten it from Jesus. The next thing we find out about this author in the book of Hebrews is that he knew his Old Testament very well. Now, he wasn't just knowledgeable of the books of the Old Testament and could quote um, the, the Bible books um, for the Bible drill. He was saturated in the Old Testament. As we look through the book of Hebrews, we're going to find that he not only made amazing um, he, he made amazing comments about the book of Hebrews. In other words, he could draw from all different parts of the Old Testament. But then he was able to amazingly uh, make conclusions and draw um, conclusions from these bringing together of all these Old Testament texts and then lay them bare upon Christ in such a way that he was very well versed in the Old Testament of being able to bring that together and understand that. So he wasn't just some kid that began learning his Bible in his bedroom and, and grew up with that understanding. We believe that whoever was the author of Hebrews was formally trained in the Old Testament and that he was able to bring all this together very much like one would be like Paul in the way of his understanding and his, his training. So he knew his Old Testament well. First, he wasn't an eyewitness. Second, he knew his Old Testament well. Thirdly, what's amazing about this, and this is where I became more and more excited about the book of Hebrews. Um, as you read through the book of Hebrews, and I want you to note this as we work through it, the author of this book was not like Paul in that he was with his people. Now, why do I say that? Paul typically in his missionary journeys would go and travel to a particular area. He would stay three to four to five months, and then he'd leave. Paul never gave the impression that he was ever going to stay anywhere long unless he was imprisoned. If he was imprisoned, then he'd be there until he could get out, and as soon as he got out, he left. The author of this letter, as you read through it, you realize this is a pastor who's there and who's staying. He's not going anywhere. He loves his people. We find out that in this short book, the, um, the, the, the pronouns we and us is mentioned over 79 times in this book alone. He's constantly saying we and us, we and us. He's speaking of how we are the ones being persecuted. He wasn't afar off writing to them about the persecution they were going through, saying hang in there. He was in the midst of this as well. He may have been one of those who was imprisoned. He was in the midst of his people. He was present with them. And it's amazing to me for me to see this. Added to that, what's amazing for me as well, is that he cared for his people deeply. And this gives me an incredible insight. Because I think we've lost today, in our day, in our culture, the idea of the pastor being a shepherd. Today, too often, the pastor is the CEO, the executive, the, the one who orders and orchestrates the big machine. And he's not with his people, shepherding and loving and caring for his people. What we find in this passage is that this was a pastor and a shepherd who knew the faces and the names of his people. He cared for them. He was pleading for them to endure, to stand fast, to hold on, to keep going. 
He wasn't some arbitrary outside person who was riding into the enemy lines. He was in the midst of these people. He knew them intimately. And he wanted each and every person in his congregation to grow in their assurance and confidence in their faith. It wasn't this broad, I'm taking care of the masses here in Rome, and I want just generally for the church to grow in a general way to be better. No, instead, look with me at Hebrews chapter 6. This gives you an idea of not only the we, us understanding, but also the intimacy by which this pastor, shepherd, was preaching and encouraging his people. Now, as you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, I want you to also know that this is encouraging to me in that this pastor, shepherd, wasn't one who was aloft. Um, We'll find in this passage, in this this book, this author um, gets into... Um, as I grew up understanding, he was kind of getting into the grill of these people. Don't you dare abandon ship now. I mean, he, he, was, he, was, he, he had the ability because he loved them and they knew he loved him. He was, he was able to confront them in a very intimate, personal way. He was in their lives in an intimate way, in such a way that he was able to speak to them. And it's amazing the, the personality that's there. Notice with me just a little bit of this in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Verse, chapter 6, verse 11. <clears throat> Let me start back up in verse 9 because that begins the paragraph there. Chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Do you hear the personality of the pastor here? Though we speak in these ways, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For, verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for the name, for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Verse 11, and we desire, notice this phrase, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. How many does he want to do that? Each one of you we want to uh, share, show the same earnestness, and have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see what he's doing? He's saying, we, us, We're in this together. We're trying to continue in confidence and in faith. This is a struggle we have, according to this passage. He says, we we feel sure of better things, verse 9. Things that belong to salvation. See, they're thinking that better things is, well, I need my house back. I need my husband back. I need my children back. I need my finances back. And he's saying, there are better things than that. Would Would you please look to the things that are in the verse 12? Faith and patience and inherit the promises of God. This encouraged me greatly to see that we are going to be working in a book, the book of Hebrews, for the next year alongside of an ancient shepherd, an ancient pastor. And we're going to allow him to speak into our lives, to encourage us, to love us, to to get into our lives and to speak to us. A pastor who knew his sheep, the, the names of his sheep, the faces of his sheep, the names of the children. He knew how to pray for them specifically, not in some, dear God, please bless all of us. Dear God, please bless these 4,000 people that are standing in front of me in this church. No, he knew exactly who he was talking about. And he was wanting to love them and encourage them and promote faithfulness in their lives. Finally, why? Number five, why? Well, the purpose of the book is to encourage these professing Jewish believers to continue in their faith, to endure, to stand fast, and also to warn them against the danger of falling away. Go with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2. We're getting ready to do a sweep all the way through the book. So go to chapter 2. We're going to start there. Chapter 2. All of this is in your outline on page two of your worship journal. So you may want to follow along in that as well. If you get turned around 
This book is to encourage the professing Jewish believers to continue in their faith, to endure, to stand fast, and to warn them against the danger of falling away. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, how are they going to be standing fast and enduring? It's not by their willpower. It's by, according to this, paying much closer attention to what we have heard. Is that a, is that a necessary truth for us today? To pay much more careful attention to what we hear preached and proclaimed and read from God's word and encouraged by one another to pay much more careful attention. In this passage, in this book, we see five different warnings, five different warnings. And it really creates the, 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 the framework of the entire book. These five warnings are dispersed throughout the book. And I've actually noticed in your, on your worship journal here, page three at the top, uh, number one, the superior, the superior person of Christ. Letter A, Christ is better than angels. Subpoint three, see that? And I've highlighted that. Warning number one. Okay? That's in where we're at right now in chapter two, verses one through four. This warning, warning number one, if you want to take notes, is a warning of ignorance. Of ignorance. Meaning that they were not paying attention to what they were hearing. They were not clinging to and trusting in the person and work of Christ. And so we see here the tendency for them, the, the danger for them, is that they were going to drift away. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer is we won't. We won't escape the wrath of God, if we neglect this great salvation that comes through the hearing of God's word, we're going to drift away and neglect this message. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the first danger that this passage, this book gives to us, is a danger of ignorance, a danger of of not of, of neglecting the preached word primarily, but also the, the word from God. That's the only means of God's word they had during this time. They didn't all have ESV study Bibles to thumb through and to spend time in. They, the only measure of God's word they had was from this loving pastor that preached to them week in and week out on Lord's Day. The warning is, is the warning of ignorance, a warning of drifting away. Let's pay much more close attention to what we've heard. Warning number two is in chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. And this warning is a warning of unbelief. Warning number one is warning of ignorance, to drift away. Warning number two is a warning of unbelief. Notice with me verse 12 of chapter 3. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you... And excuse me, take care, brothers, lest there be any, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Leading you to fall away. What can cause these people to fall away from the living God? Well, an evil, unbelieving heart. These are people who profess faith in Christ. And yet when it's all said and done, they had an evil, unbelieving heart. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the second warning is a warning of unbelief, to be led away. First warning is ignorance, to be drifting away. Third warning, if you will, turn to chapter 5. Warning number 3. Chapter 5, warning number 3, is a warning of immaturity. Immaturity. And it's a warning here of falling away. If you will turn, actually, it's, it's the, the warning starts in chapter 5, verse 11, and it goes down into chapter 6, verse 20. And so I want you to look with me at chapter 6, verse, let's see here, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4. This will be... Uh, some of the, 
this will be some of the most interesting of the sermons will be right here in chapter 6. We'll let Chris preach those and uh, do that. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers, that, uh, powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Listen to this. This should, this should make us tremble. And then if they fall away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. There is no way for them to be restored. Those who fall away because of their immaturity. Because of their immaturity. We'll look at that. Warning warning number three. Warning number four. Look with me in chapter ten. Warning number four. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32. Warning number one was ignorance, and it was one of drifting away. Warning number two was unbelief, one of being led away. Warning number three was immaturity, one of falling away. Warning number four is a warning to quit, and it's to throw away the faith. Verse 32. But I recall the former days when. After you, have been, after you were enlightened, you endured the hard struggle with sufferings. We've already read this. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than an abiding one. These are the people who were suffering and struggling. These are the people who were going and visiting people in prison that were placing themselves in harm's way. These are people who had been through much reproach and affliction and publicly exposed. These are people who allowed their property to be plundered. Verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. See, all the loss they had, don't throw away, don't quit, don't stop. So, I mean, we, we know where they're at, don't we? There's so much I've lost for following Christ, for naming Him. I don't think I can go on anymore. I think I'm going to stop. I think I'm going to abandon the faith. I think I'm going to quit. And he says, no, don't throw that away. Don't throw away that confidence. Why? Verse 35, which has a great reward. You haven't lost anything. You haven't lost anything compared to the reward. Finally, warning number five is in verse 12, or chapter 12. Chapter 12 Chapter 12, verse 25. Chapter 12, verse 25. And the idea here is that they heard this word, this understanding of who Christ was, and they were rejecting it. They were refusing it. They were pushing it away. They heard it. They knew what it was. They knew the call. They knew the commitment. They knew what was asked of them. And they said, no thanks. According to verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And he's saying, this is a warning Do not reject Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The stakes are far too high. You lose everything if you reject or refuse Christ. You lose everything. Why? Look at verse 29 of chapter 12. For our God is a consuming fire. That's that's a pastor who is blood earnest about the stakes that are are there. And also a pastor who who is in the midst of his people... Losing and sacrificing in the same way they are. Let me close in this way. Turn, if you will, to chapter 13 at the very end. Verses 20 and 21 is a benediction that we'll be using at the end of the services for the next year, which is the benediction from the book of Hebrews. I would like for us to get to know it well. Before I read it, I want to encourage you and challenge you in this way. In the next year, pray 
that the Lord will continually remind you, bring to your remembrance, grant you faith and repentance when you try to make Christ a means to an end other than God. And I want you to get this phrase and quote it to yourself often. You'll have to, if you're like my stubborn heart, my drifting heart, my falling away heart, you have to say it silent to yourself almost all day long. And it is this, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. He's enough. He's enough. He can satisfy me, not that thing I'm looking for him to do for me. Because he's my savior from a holy God. And that's what I need. I don't know what I need. A recent title of a book that I read, I thought summed it up well. If you're a mathematician, we talked to the English people a while ago. I'm going to talk to the mathematicians now. Christ plus nothing equals everything. And that's what the book of Hebrews is helping us understand. Christ plus nothing equals everything. How may, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray.